Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We were sitting in the restaurant. We're at the bar having a beer, actually. He showed us five or six color photocopies or color printouts, whatever you want to call them. And uh, he's like, can you tell anything from these photographs? I'm like, they look like an old pair of ruby slippers. And he kept pressing me, are these the slippers? And I'm like, I don't have enough to go by, Brian. What would you need to see, Joe, to tell me if they're real? I, I said, I need to see the insides and underneath. You know, and finally he started bringing out photographs which showed the inside of the shoe. And once I saw the inside of the slippers, I knew instantly they were Michael's because of the handwriting, you know, how they identified the slippers, what number they were inside, and the construction. Uh, we were able then to take a pair of Michael's slippers that I had on my phone and side by side do the comparison and say, these are 100% the same pair. But we didn't know where the pictures came from, and he wouldn't tell us. I'm Sayward Darby. And I'm Ariel Ramshandani. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Episode 5. Who can you trust? At the end of the last episode, we talked about a tip the police got that changed everything in the case of the missing ruby slippers. But that change, it turned out to be slow and winding. No one experienced it more acutely than Brian Matson who became the lead detective on the case in 2016. I was born in Grand Rapids. My mom and my dad divorced when I was young. We moved to Texas. But I remember my mom playing The Wizard of Oz. She's like, hey, you know, this is Judy Garland, and she's from where you're from. She's from Grand Rapids. You know, so I, you know, that was something I'd tell my little grade school friends, like, oh, yeah, she's from where I'm from, you know, so it was kind of cool. And how ironic is I returned to my hometown where these slippers got stolen from. I now work for the police. I'm an investigator. This is my case. It's almost fate, like that's the way it was supposed to be. This is Matson. He took a phone call in the summer of 2017 from a man claiming to know where the slippers were. That kind of felt like fate, too. But Matson still had a ton of legwork to do. He had to figure out if the guy was telling the truth. We don't know the identity of the caller the police wouldn't tell us. So we're going to refer to him as Florida Man, because that's where he was located. Florida Man claimed he was a former federal agent, which Matson had to confirm. But it was risky for Matson, sticking his neck out, investigating someone with a connection to a government agency. He was nervous. I had to try to corroborate a person involved that had contacted me about the slippers, uh, let's say a third party, you know, he was telling me he was from a, uh, uh, let's call it a, uh, a different government agency, okay? 
I, I would think that this agency was even higher than the FBI. So who do you call to corroborate that? Right? Who do you call? Who can you trust? The person Matson called was an FBI agent named Chris Dudley, who was working cases in Minnesota. So that's who I reached out to is my, my friend from the FBI. He's a guy I trust. He operates with integrity. He's as honest as a day is long. And I, I can tell you he got back to me with about this much information and wasn't given anything else. But he gave me the answer I was looking for. So the person that contacted him got a little bit of credibility from me. We were curious which government agency Florida Man worked for. I asked Matson if it was the Secret Service. I, I just don't want to <laughs> name that agency. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying there's any reason I should be fearful, but I, I don't want to put myself in that place. You know, they, they were who they said they were. You know, I have to believe that he's being honest up until that point. So Florida Man's identity checked out. But what about the shoes themselves? Florida Man had sent photos of a pair of ruby slippers. And now Matson had to figure out if they were real, or just replicas. He got the chance when a memorabilia expert came to town. We went to Grand Rapids in the dead of winter. It's cold. Sure, I have a feeling we're not in Los Angeles anymore. Ah, definitely not. Bitter cold. That's Joe Maddalena. You also heard him at the beginning of the episode. He ran Profiles in History, a major memorabilia auction house, for more than 35 years. And in 2018, he visited Grand Rapids for the TV show Expedition Unknown with host Josh Gates. God, how is it this cold? They were shooting an episode about the missing slippers. A crew stayed for several snowy weeks. The police arranged for the Yellow Brick Road, an actual yellow street in town, to be plowed for filming and the Visitor's Bureau kept guests happy with cookies and cocoa. Grand Rapids, Minnesota, <laughs> is a tiny hamlet, very quaint town. Like, I mean, it's tiny. You know, we would walk, we walked by uh, one of the hotels, had a sign up, welcome Joe and Josh. I mean, they knew we were there. It was big news. I mean, this is a big, this is the biggest story that's ever hit this town. Josh, Joe? Brian! Hey, it's Brian! <laughs> I couldn't tell you at that point a good replica from the originals. Joe, I know you're one of the few people that will be able to identify authentic ruby slippers. He was able to authenticate him that these were Michael Shaw's slippers. So that, that gave me hope that, yeah, we are on the right path. But being on the right path didn't mean the end was in sight. Florida Man was hard to pin down. His communication was sporadic, unpredictable. A lot of back and forth, you know, between telephone calls, emails, um, just a lot of back and forth. Uh, you know, it might be days, week, okay, reach back out. And then it would be days, week before I'd get return. So it was fairly slow. You know, in the meantime, I got a million cases going on. Drug cases, theft cases, you know, could have been heroin sitting on my desk. And then here I'm taking a phone call about the ruby slippers. At a certain point, Florida Man introduced Matson to more people who said they had information about the missing ruby slippers. One of them was a lawyer who wanted to act as a middleman. Did they ever tell you why they were getting in touch then? 
like the time when the guy called you was he ever like oh and he, he explained to me why but I, I you know that would probably come into play in a criminal case if it happens um, he did have a explanation as to why now uh, basically two people bumping into each other from the past and sounds like an opportunity that came up and people jumped on board you have to think what would you do in that position you know if you're position everything is going to get you a substantial amount of money it seems to be why a lot of good people make mistakes you know opportunity it's worth pausing here to say if a lot of this sounds ambiguous the who the how the why that's because it is law enforcement was hesitant to give us specifics about the investigation what we can say for sure is this the people Matson was in touch with, including Florida Man and the lawyer, almost certainly didn't steal the ruby slippers. But they claimed that they knew who had the shoes, and they said they could help get them back for a payout. Last episode, we talked about the million-dollar reward for the slippers' return that was put up anonymously. For Matson, figuring out how to actually get that money proved difficult. So he called the company that had insured the slippers, and it offered a new reward. It was less money, $200,000. But it wasn't nothing. I don't care how you want to do this. Like, put them across the street in a bag in front of the police station and call me. Say, hey, you need to go across the street and there's a package. You know, I wasn't looking to put anyone in handcuffs or do a criminal case. I just was trying to make this return happen. Let's just get them back. Matson wasn't worried about his success rate netting bad guys. In fact, in Minnesota, the statute of limitations on the theft had already expired. Matson was so deep in the case that he knew just how many people wanted to see the ruby slippers come home. People whose lives had been defined by the Wizard of Oz and Judy Garland and everything they stood for. In a way, Matson was working for them. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. This is the Scarecrow in the Music Box from TV's Off to See the Wizard, a cartoon that was released in 1960s. Oops, he didn't pop up. Let's try him again. Hang on.
and the scarecrow pops up. It still gets me every time, the surprise. <laughs> this is Jane Albright. She's the president of the International Wizard of Oz Club. She collects Oz memorabilia, and her attic is devoted to her collection. She has around 30,000 items up there. When you walk in, you're immediately confronted with this life-sized winky guard from the 1989 Macy's uh, Oz Day event and a glass case filled with merchandise that was released with the 1939 film. And the two windows on that wall have 12 pieces of stained glass, each presenting two different Oz characters, handmade by Century Studios up in Minneapolis. On the right side of the room, Albright read the Oz books when she was a kid. She started going to conventions in the 1970s, events organized by the club she now leads. At the time, she wasn't even old enough to drive. Finding the Oz Club was one of those experiences where people will say, I found my people. It was like a, a family or a school reunion each summer to get together with my Oz friends, many of whom now, 50 years later, are still some of my dearest friends. Like many Oz fans, Albright has a replica pair of the ruby slippers. Her collection has an international section, too. In other parts of the world, they knew The Wizard of Oz from a puppet show or a ballet or their own filmed versions. In doing this maps exhibit that I'm working on for the Oz Museum, I found maps of Oz in Hebrew, Polish, Japanese, Russian, Italian, Spanish, and it just amazes me to think that kids in you know, Poland are opening an Oz book and learning about the land of Oz off of a map in Polish while we're sitting here thinking it's an American fairy tale. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks it's their fairy tale. I think the appeal of Oz comes largely because it's a very accepting place. People who are unusual and different are celebrated. So anyone reading it is going to feel like they belong there because anybody who arrives at Oz belongs and is welcomed and loved. One community in particular responded to the movie's message of acceptance and adopted Judy Garland as a kind of patron saint. The idea that there might be a place like Oz, which allowed you to be who you were, where troubles melt like lemon drops, and where expressions of emotion were okay, that was an extraordinary idea to me. And I think it was appealing to me well before I had the capacity to understand why. This is Nathaniel Frank, whose grandfather wrote a biography of Judy, based in part on extensive interviews with the star. Frank is an author, too, and he's written about Judy's importance in queer culture. My interest in Judy Garland really came through The Wizard of Oz. And the idea of this lovable little girl who was in this black-and-white farm community that didn't allow her to be herself and do the things she wanted to do, and suddenly she's catapulted to this place over the rainbow which is a colorful city full of lovable misfits who want to protect her and help her get what she wants. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. But Judy's role as Dorothy is only one reason she became a queer icon. 
just as important is the way she had to fight for herself, for her life. It's the explanation that appeals to me, and it's also among the most poignant reasons for a queer love of Judy Garland. And we're talking about that paradox of her as someone who never really had her own sense of identity because she was a a manufactured wind-up doll to please strangers. Um, She also, because of low self-esteem, had developed many crushes on older men, married men that were taboo and that she often felt she couldn't express. And that's something that queer people certainly identify with, having these longings, these loves, these feelings that at their core, they feel they can't express without being punished, without losing relationships that are most important to them. Judy and pieces of her persona formed a kind of shorthand in the LGBTQ community. For instance, the phrase friend of Dorothy became a way for queer people to identify each other. The queer community has always identified itself, at least to one another, largely through symbols. The colorful handkerchief of Oscar Wilde's time that you would wear in your back pocket or or on your lapel. Songs, common figures that people admire was a way of simply identifying yourself to one another to meet for friendship or for sexual intimacy, you know, partner hunting, if that's what you were doing. So I think Judy Garland became a symbol for the gay community. Funeral services were held in New York today for Judy Garland, who died in London Sunday at the age of 47. Judy was found dead in London on June 22nd, 1969. And her funeral was about five days later, and it was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and tens of thousands of people came out to pay their last respects. And we know that among them were a great number of LGBT people. Thousands of people lined the streets outside the funeral chapel on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Many of them had waited for hours in the heat to pay this last tribute to a woman they had known since her childhood. How long have you been here? I've been here since 3 o'clock this morning. Why? Because I thought it was my duty, because I respected Judy Garland, and I wanted to share my respect by coming. It was a time when it was not easy and not common to physically show up somewhere as a community. Not that people had signs saying, we're her gay fans, but they knew it and they could recognize one another. And there was something very moving and empowering about being a queer fan of Judy and being able to show up and attend her funeral. A few hours later, four miles south at this dusty, grungy, mob-owned bar known for queer people attending it, there may have been people who had also been at the funeral. The Stonewall Uprising, the spark of the modern LGBTQ rights movement, took place the night after Judy's funeral. Police raided a gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. Patrons and neighborhood residents started protesting, and they kept going for six days. The Stonewall Inn was a bar that didn't have a liquor license, and so... It considered itself a bottle club, which meant you had to sign in. And a lot of people signed Judy Garland or Mickey Mouse or something. They weren't going to sign their real name. And it could very well be that people drinking and sad and empowered by the funeral were riled up in some way 
as a result of Judy's death and the funeral. This is more legend than proven fact. Some historians dispute the link between the funeral and the uprising. But the story still holds a lot of power. Having a story that matters to people, that matters to a community and to a group, is an important part of queer history. And I think that's why that legend of there being a connection between Judy's death and Stonewall lingers. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. We were expecting to have a press conference in Kansas City when they arrived. We wanted to attract a lot of attention to the fact that the shoes were going to be here that would help draw attendance to the event. That's Jane Albright again. More than 30 years after Judy's death, in 2005, Albright was doing what she loves the most, organizing an event for Oz fans. It was called Oztoberfest, and it was held in the town of Wamego, Kansas, which has a permanent Oz museum. The stars of the event were supposed to be a pair of the original ruby slippers. It was the shoe's next destination after the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids. But they didn't make it. There was literally no time to regroup and come up with an alternative program. Michael Shaw, who owned them, still came to the event. And there was a lot of commotion going on. Someone had made a t-shirt based on the, like, the Where's Waldo thing of where the shoes. And the, the the shirt was covered with all these little bitty totos, and then the ruby slippers were in one corner. And I remember I was wearing it when I met Michael, and he managed to laugh. Here's Michael Shaw talking about the trip to Kansas. He was planning to do more than attend Oztoberfest. I had gotten a call from a woman that was director of the foster children care. And they were going to do this deal where I would be taken throughout Kansas with the shoes and have get-togethers to try to get some of these foster children adopted. And one day the director was going to take me to lunch and we're walking down the street and I see these large color photos of these adorable children in the windows. A photographer took pictures of all of these children that were part of the foster care And when I took a look at those faces, that's when I almost broke down and cried. Because I think the bastard, whoever stole the shoes, stole a life from these kids. Back in Grand Rapids, Detective Brian Matson might not have known about the foster kids. But he did know about Shaw. And about people like Jane Albright and Nathaniel Frank. They helped motivate him to make a tough decision when communication with Florida Man and his associates stalled. I remember that moment when the bad guys in my talk just went stale. I waited for about a month, but nothing. I remember going home, talking to the wife. I said, I think I've stalled, but I've got a lot of information of who I'm dealing with. I said, do you think I should ask for some help, for some outside help, or should I just let it sit and see what happens? If you've ever watched or listened to true crime shows, you know the police asking for help from another law enforcement agency is pretty fraught. Ceding power in a profession that's all about authority comes with any number of risks. She's like, well, what do you want to do? Like, what, what's your goal here? I said, I just want to get him back. 
when you're talking to different people involved uh, with, you know, Judy Garland, the, the slippers, just just what these slippers represented to so many people. Um, I didn't really realize that. And then you kind of it kind of clicks with him when you talk to these people and and, and just what all of this means to them and what it represents. And it, it's much more than just a pair of ruby slippers. And my wife said, then ask for help. What do you, what do you care who gets the glory or who does it? And that's when I made that phone call. The fly monkeys uh, scared the heck out of me as a kid and I would hide behind the couch. So it probably took me a few years before I'd actually sit on the couch for the whole thing. This is Chris Dudley, an FBI agent from the Minneapolis field office. He's the friend Matson called for help identifying Florida man. And now Matson had an even bigger ask. He wanted the FBI to officially join the investigation. Beyond being scared of the flying monkeys, Dudley didn't have much experience with the Wizard of Oz or film memorabilia before he was brought in on the case. I didn't know anything about uh, about the ruby slippers. I was certainly not an expert in antique women's shoes um, <laughs> prior to this investigation. I, uh, I have certainly gotten my fair share of ribbing from some, uh, some friends and colleagues. You have a lot of folks that um, you have that question like, hey, it's just a pair of shoes. What's, you know, what's the big deal? probably wasn't until I started researching the slippers and their history for the investigation that I really started to appreciate and understand, you know, where the interest in, in the slippers uh, stems from, just kind of the intrinsic value in them to, uh, to so many people. Dudley couldn't go into details about his involvement in the case, even what his and Matson's phone call was like. I can't, I can't get too, too involved into how we came into, into how the FBI became in, in, involved, but, uh, as always, any time that we have any of our local or state partners reach out for assistance, um, we always we always look to see what we're able to do. And it was something where it was determined um, early on that we, we, in fact, did have federal jurisdiction and were able to help um, the Grand Rapids Police Department um, with, with the investigation. Um, and based on the direction that the, uh, that the case took uh, fairly early on, um, it became evident that it was something that we were best postured to, uh, to take lead on, certainly in, in collaboration with them. Matson's description of the conversation is more revealing. He later told me, he goes, you know, 20 minutes into that phone call, I'm sitting there pretty much thinking you're crazy. He said about 45 minutes into that phone call, he goes, I got people crowded around here on speakerphone. He goes, we can't wait to get started. The FBI and Matson came up with a plan to get the slippers back. Here's the gist of it. Law enforcement would tell the people who knew where the ruby slippers were that the company that had insured the shoes was offering a bigger reward than it actually was. Matson's contacts would agree to meet with FBI agents, posing as insurance reps, with money in hand to exchange for the slippers. They, they didn't know they were meeting law enforcement, so it was a ruse. It was a lot more money, I'd imagine. More than likely, yeah. Yeah, it'd be a safe assumption. So it came down to money. The contacts fell for it. You might be wondering why. It's possible the plan was just that convincing, or that Matson's contacts were bad at committing crimes. But they claimed they weren't criminals. They were just people helping criminals. In the best case scenario, they would get a lot of money. 
And in the worst, they might not get rich, but they also weren't likely to face legal charges. I'm going to guess these people were successful in other endeavors like this. Uh, so you do what you're comfortable with, what, what you know. And if it's worked before or appears to be working, I, I think they just rolled with it, you know. I, I really, I'm really surprised they took the bait after our communication stopped that our talks were reinitiated, although it was under a guise. Um, I was surprised that that worked. The scheme required employees at the real insurance company to play a part, and everyone gave a top-notch performance. It's like a wagon wheel. If every spoke in that wheel had not done their job flawlessly, this never would have happened. Every, everyone did their job awesome and worked together. The plan was set. In July 2018, nearly a year to the day after Florida Man first called him, Matson got into his unmarked patrol vehicle, a gold Jeep Grand Cherokee, and drove south toward Minneapolis. That was where the sting would happen. Matson spent the ride anxiously replaying his communications in his head. He tells his wife everything, so she knew what he was up to. But almost no one else did. That night, he stayed over at his father-in-law's in a Minneapolis suburb, and he kept his mouth shut. I just told him I was there for work. He never, he never asked what I was doing for work. And I was told not to even tell the people I worked with. It was so few people knew what I was doing that day. Because if word had gotten out, leaked to the press, something like that, it, it could have really killed this from happening. And, you know, it's not that you don't trust anyone. It's just we're, we're so close. You know, we got to try to make this happen. Matson woke up the next morning at 445. He donned a button-down shirt and jeans. He wanted to blend in with people in the trendy warehouse district of Minneapolis. He was due to meet Dudley and his team at 5.30. On his way, Matson stopped at a Starbucks and ordered a white chocolate mocha. He snapped a selfie doing it, for posterity. If all went according to plan, this would be the day Matson finally got his hands on the missing ruby slippers. Next time on No Place Like Home. I asked them what was in the box, and they just said, oh, we're not at liberty to tell. Okay, move in. This is some kind of, what's bag? This is a joke. Yeah, you better not be blankety-blank with me. It is very difficult for the FBI to go ahead and do this properly, and that's why the art crime team exists. I think I spent 200 hours looking at him through a microscope. You see the FBI comes in, they take over, and they take all the credit. I was angry, personally, I was angry. It was mayhem. So I think we still have a lot to learn about the theft and what was, what was in the minds of the people who thought that maybe they could profit from this. No Place Like Home is a presentation, direction, and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio, in partnership with The Atavist Magazine. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran. Written by Ariel Ramshandani. Narrated by Ariel Ramshandani and me, Sayward Darby. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Edited by Alistair Sherman. 
produced by Paige Heimson and Valerie Thomas. Engineering, research, and production support by Adam Pershibel, Bill Schultz, Ian Mont, Bob Tabador, Patrick Antonetti, and Sean Cherry. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Hilary Schiff, Melissa Wester, and Meredith Tiger. Series artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Season one of No Place Like Home is based on reporting by Ariel Ramchandani for The Atavist magazine. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.